this morning. We are walking through the book of 1 John together on Sunday mornings. If you're in the back, can you give me a quick nod if you can hear me? Alright, so we're walking through the book of John, of 1 John, together on Sunday mornings. And currently we have made our way in the middle of chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to ask you to go ahead and turn there. And the first thing that we're going to do is we're about to go to God and we're about to ask God to meet with us. And that's the desire of every Christian in this room. We do not desire to go through this meeting in vain. We want to meet with our God. We want Him to speak to us. So let's pray. Lord, we love You this morning as Your church. We love You, Lord, because You first loved us, God. And we just sang it, Lord. God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, thank You for dying for our sins. Thank You that in this moment, Lord, that Your blood is on the mercy seat on our behalf and You have finished the work on our behalf, Lord. Eternally, God, we will praise You as the Redeemer, the One who died for our sins. God, thank You for Your salvation. And Lord, we honor, we honor You today. Lord, You are risen to reign. And this is what we pray, Lord. Reign over us, Lord Jesus. Reign over all that you have made. Receive the reward for your suffering today, Lord. And we come to you, God. We pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In our lives, God, as it is in heaven, Lord. Reign over us as our King, Lord. You are worthy of all allegiance, all worship, all honor, all praise, Lord. And we ask that you would drive everything out of us, God, that is contrary to you. Make us a holy people, Lord. Do it today. Come work in our midst today, Lord. In the midst of this new place, God. God, you don't need anything special to do your work. You need nothing, Lord. Nothing can stop you. God, we ask you to move in our midst, God, and to break the power of sin in our lives, Lord. God, set us free from habitual sin and come meet with us today in power. Come use your word in our life, God. Come, come speak to us, Lord. Come address us, God. Come draw near to us, Lord, and help me to preach and help us to hear with the strength and the ability that you supply. Come get glory in your church today, Lord Jesus. Come be the living God that you promised yourself to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, turn to 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to start out this morning by reading our passage together. So 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 15 through verse 17. This is the Word of God. Do not love the world... Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides 
forever. This is God's Word to His church today. So let's talk about this before we start unpacking this text together. Today we're going to talk about the sin of worldliness. This is something that God warns us about in this passage. And you don't hear this word talked about very much today, especially in our generation. This refrain from worldliness. The sin of worldliness. But this is a big emphasis in 1 John. Okay, In fact, this is the first imperative that we have come to in our study of this letter. So as we progress through, this is the first time where John squares off with his audience. And this is the most forceful that he's been so far. When he looks at this group of people and he demands them, do not love the world. He is forbidding something to happen in their life and through them to us today. This is an authoritative demand. That God lays on every image bearer in all of His creation that He forbids us to love the world. He forbids us to love the world. We're going to dive into what that means this morning, but before we do, I want to remind us what He's not doing in this passage. I want to remind us of what, of what group of people that He's talking to. So if you'll go back two weeks ago, we, we studied through verse 12 through verse 14. And we had a heavy dose of gospel encouragement that John is writing to a group of people and he's not sweating their state of their soul. Okay, He's not sweating, are they really in or are they really out? He is writing to a group of genuine Christians. I want you to read verse 12 with me. This is who he's writing to. This is who gets this command. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. I am writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. So this is a group of people that their sins are forgiven. They know God and their strongest enemy has been slaughtered. These are a group of Christians. And to this group of people, John writes, do not love the world. Do not love the world. So here's here's what this is not. This is not... A, a, a commandment given to a group of people who are absolutely in love with the world and the things of this world. And he's saying, stop it. Just stop it. Just stop what you're doing. That's not what's happening here. These are a group of people that love the Father. They love Christ. They love Jesus. Okay? But even these true Christians need to be warned that they are not to love the world. And that's the same thing that I want this passage To do this morning to us. We are the church. We are the people of God. The majority in this room are my brothers and sisters in Christ. That I know. That I love. That I know what Christ has done in your life. You're not in love with the world. But you need to be warned about this monster. Just like this group of Christians in the first century. Every generation needs to be warned about this love for the world. And this is also a warning. And, and this smokes out, just like these tests in 1 John, th- th- this smokes out false converts in the midst of the church. And it reveals true and false conversion. You can really know if someone has or has not believed the gospel. It can be distinguished by their lifestyle. God has given us tests to discern this. And one of these is the presence of a love for the world. A love for the world. So believers in every generation need to be warned about this. 
And I want you to receive that this morning. This is God's warning to His children today. And I want you to hear it like that. I want you to hear it with a heart to lean in and be reminded of it. Okay? Like you go to the doctor and, and you think you might be sick. And that doctor says, open your mouth and say, what does he say? Ah, he wants to know if there's something wrong down inside your throat. Not so that he can make you feel worse, but so that he can make you feel better. And that's the same thing that God desires with these idols and these inappropriate loves in our life. And so I want to encourage you this morning to have that heart as we approach these commandments. Search me, Holy Spirit. Search me, Holy Spirit. And I just want to give you just, just, some, just some more specific encouragement along these lines. Is that as you hear these hard words of Scripture, okay? This is, falls under that category. Sometimes Scripture speaks like a hammer and it speaks a hard word. You know what we're hardwired to do because of our sin, because of our depravity? We're almost immediately begin to think about other people other than ourselves. So we hear that hammer and we think in our sinfulness, we think, man, I know the perfect person for that, okay? And you might, you might. But first, but first, we want God's Word to do His work in us. And so I want every person that's hearing this, this Word today from God, what does God intend to personally address you about from this passage? What does He intend to address you personally about from this passage? Me and Hunter Ainsworth were talking about this not even two days ago. About hearing these hard words and immediately thinking about other people. And I want you to know that about yourself. That's part of the sinful nature. We are experts at rationalizing personal sin. At explaining away personal sin. And magnifying other people's sin. That's true across the board. You need to be aware of that about yourself. And you need to kick against it from the very beginning. So we want to know what God would say to each and every one of us today. So here's the question that I, that I want you to think about. What, what in your life right now, in the present tense, in this moment, what in your life right now is competing with God for your affections? What does God intend to highlight in your life right now. Even as I study through this passage. I know what this is trying to do to me. I know something very specific in my life. A strategy in my life. That's, that's being sprung for me to try to bite the bait. I know what I need to be fighting against right now. In this season of my life. Do you? Do you? What does God intend to highlight? The things that compete for your affections against God. If you love God, and most of you in this room, I know, not everyone in this room, but if you love God, you want to know the things in your life that offend Him, and that's the heart that we want to come to this warning with. Lord, search me. Lord, show me. Examine me by Your Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, with that heart of how we're leaned in and listening to God's Word, First thing I want us to do this morning is I want us to examine what does this mean? You have this heavy hammer of a commandment where he says, do not love the world. And I want you to think about, but what does that actually mean? 
What would it actually look like in my life if I were to disregard this commandment and love the world? And I just want to encourage you with this. That is not as easy a question to answer as you think it is on the surface. When, when, when we say, do not love the world, okay? That's not as easy as it sounds on the surface. I want you to remember back just several weeks ago, beginning of chapter 2 of 1 John, we talked about this. We talked about this Greek word, called, the Greek word cosmos that's translated world. We talked about this word meaning Different things in different verses of Scripture. And it does. It means many different things. Okay? And so the question that we ought to have is, but what does it mean here? What specifically are we not supposed to be loving? And I want to highlight three of these uses. This is not every use of that word. But this is three. And I want you to be clear of what exactly in your life you are being forbidden to love. Do not Love the world. First is this. The word is sometimes in scripture. It's used to describe God's creation. The entire universe. Everything that has been made. Is sometimes called the world. I'll show you this. Jesus used it this way. In John 17 verse 24. Listen. Jesus says to the father. You have loved me. Before the foundation. Of the world. Of the world. You can insert before the foundation of creation. Of the universe. Of everything that has been made. Okay. This is not what the word means in our passage. And it would be entirely inappropriate and wrong. For you to think that this is a prohibition. That you are not to love God's creation. That's not what it means. The word means different things in different verses. Depending on the context. God's creation is good, right? First two chapters of the Bible tell us six times some form of the phrase. God made it and He said it's good. Five times over and then the sixth day God said it's very good. God's creation is His work, His handiwork. And so we are not being forbidden to love what God calls good. We are actually above all people on the earth we are to enjoy this creation and use it and enjoy it to the glory and praise of God. It magnifies His glory. Psalm 19 says it declares His glory. So don't misunderstand the commandment. Don't have low views of, of the work that God has done in creation. We are to love creation. We are to love beautiful mountains, majestic landscapes, green grass, beautiful scenery because it is to make us worship God. That's not what it means. That's not what the commandment means. Other times in Scripture, this word cosmos is used to refer to humanity in general. Okay? To people in God's creation. To people in the world. Listen to this. In John 3, verse 16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. What's He loving there? He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the people of the world. He sent His Son for the sinners in His creation, the people of the world. And so the question that we begin to, to think about is, wait, 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 wait a second. God just loved the world. Same Greek word, same biblical writer. And he's telling us, but don't love the world. And obviously this means something different. 
God does not forbid us from loving the people in the world. We are to love what God loves, hate what God hates, and God loves sinners. God loves the people in this world. So it would be entirely appropriate for you to have people in your mind when God says, do not love the world. How in the, how in the world can we evangelize the world without loving the world? We can't. God has commanded us to love the people in the world. And we'll just qualify that, right? We love the people in the world the way God does. And God loves them with a redemptive love. Okay? He loves them with a love towards salvation. We are not to love the people of this world with a heart to participate and join in their sins. We are to love the people of this world with the love that God loves them. Okay? Which brings us to this third use of the word. Sometimes in Scripture, this word cosmos is used to refer to an evil system. And that's how it's being used in our passage today. And I want to expose this system. Okay? This wicked, evil system that John is calling the world. The world. So when it's used in this way, the word cosmos means the exact opposite of the word chaos. And at the root, the idea here is that, is that there's an order. That there is a system, an order, an organization of evil, of wickedness that is at work in God's creation. And he calls that the world. That's what we mean when we refer to as the world system. Okay? I am not talking about the personal sin that lives in you. I'm talking about something different, different than that. Something on a bigger scale than that. Every single person in God's creation is a sinner with a sinful nature. But I'm talking about an organized, an organized group in rebellion against God. A system of wickedness. This system is made up. This organiza organization is made up of lost humanity. Millions of demons that hate God. And the president of this wicked, evil organization is Satan himself. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This entire wicked system, this entire organization is given over to satanic power. And he's the king of this organization. Twice in John's gospel, Satan is called the ruler of the world. The ruler of the world. You think about that. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4, Satan is named the God of this world. The God of this world. What does that mean? It does not mean that Satan is the king of God's creation. He is not. God, when God made all things, He didn't make a throne for Satan to sit on and rule over. Satan is not the king of God's creation. Satan is the king of this wicked, rebellious system that is in hostility to God. In hostility to God. If you know anything about this system, here's what I want you to know. It's DNA. It, it, the pulse of its soul, the ideology that springs from this system, everything that this system is about. I want you to read these verses from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. 
This is like a description of what's going on in this system. It says, in which you once walked, according, according, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So note that in your mind. This system, it has a course. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived. And then here it is. In the passions of our flesh. That's the pattern. That's the ideology. That's the worldview of this system. Everything it lives, eats, sleeps, and breathes for is summed up in that phrase, the passions of the flesh. It lives to gratify its desires apart from God the King. Everything about it, everything it does, it lives to gratify selfish, wicked, sinful, evil desires apart from God the King. This is what the system is. It's a course, a pattern, a worldview, a mindset that lives for the passions of the flesh. Lives for the passions of the flesh. More than anything else, this is a godless organization. More than anything else, it has many different expressions but at the core of all of it, it is united in rebellion against God. In rebellion against God. It is a relentless attempt to live in this creation that belongs to God. While at the same time in rebellion to God the Creator. Can you imagine more arrogance than that? In created things. Living in God's creation. Could care less about God the Creator. That's the system. That is this world system. And, and, and John tells us this morning, and God tells us through His Word, do not love this system. You are to have no affection in your heart for this wicked, evil system. I want you to think back of a story in the book of Genesis. Just several months back, when we were coming through the early chapters of Genesis. We came to this story... In Genesis chapter 11, that this same system has been at work from the very beginning. So in Genesis chapter 11, we read about this story that happened in the plain of Shinar. And this, this, this organized effort of rebellious humanity organized together at the Tower of Babel. And they confronted and, and assaulted God's authority. And they tried to take over this entire earth. In hostility to God. They tried to even storm their way into God's lair. We will forcefully advance into God's presence. This is lawless humanity. Rebellious humanity. Organized in hostility towards God. It's been this from the very beginning. Okay, Passions of the flesh. Godless society. Evil, wicked system that hates God. Hates everything about God. No, no surprise then that this system is sometimes referred to as Shinar, or this system is sometimes referred to as Babylon, as Babylon. And when this system is judged at the end of Scripture in Revelation 18 and 19, here's some of the phrases you get that's, described, that's describing this system of Babylon. Revelation 18 and 19 calls it a dwelling place of demons, a dwelling place of demons. 
Later in the same chapter, Babylon is called the mother of harlots. The mother of harlots and the dwelling place of demons. I want you to see that everything about this system 100% is anti-God. It hates God. It's hostile to God. It's godless in every way that you can imagine. And Satan sits at the king as king over this evil, wicked system. And the commandment this morning is that you are not to love it, not even a, not even a little bit, none. No love for the world. And so let's think about that though. Everything that I just said doesn't sound very appealing, right? Like if I come up to Eric and I say, Eric, I got a sweet deal for you, man. Would you love to be a card-carrying member of a demonic, satanic, wicked to the core, hates God, everything about it system? I'll give you the card for free. And Eric says, dude, get out of here, right? There's nothing about what I just said in exposing what this system is that in any way in our minds would make it appealing. And so the question is, well, if that's what it is, it doesn't sound at all like I need to be worried, worried about loving that. There doesn't sound anything appealing like that to love. Okay? And so I want to transition in this. Should we be concerned about this commandment? How concerned should we be? Okay? If it's evil to the core, 100% given over in rebellion to God, is it even really possible that I could fall in love with this world? Is, is that a hypothetical thing or is this a possible thing? Do I need, when I hear this warning, do I need to be leaned back? Enjoying myself, having a nice, you know, little, little, uh, listening to a nice little lecture? Or do I need to be leaned in, fighting for my soul when I hear this warning? Is it possible that I, as a Christian, is it possible that I could love this world? So I, I, want, I want us to press in. I want us to press in of how vigilant that God's Word would have us. As we consider this monster trying to grab a hold of us called worldliness. Worldliness. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 tells us that this system is aggressive. It's aggressive. So this is not like you know, some isolation, isolationist nation sitting on the other side of the world that you, know, you don't mess with them, they won't mess with you. And they're just sitting off passive to the side in every way. This wicked, satanic, rebellious, godless system is not like that. It is aggressive. And Romans 12 verse 2 tells us that it is, it is on a relentless mission to squeeze every human being on the face of this earth into its mold. It is relentlessly coming after each and every one of us. And we are to resist it. We are not to be conformed to this world. It wants to squeeze us into its godless mold. And here's the way that it's going to do it. Every single time, without exception, its strategy is seduction. It's seduction. And so I want you to remember, everything we know about it is wicked, evil to the core. If you knew that on the front end, you wouldn't want anything to do with it. But it... it it appears, it presents itself in a seductive way. In a seductive way. It appears to be enjoyable. It appears to be pleasurable. It appears to be right on the surface. It lies to you. It is a deceptive system. Okay? That's the seduction. 
that we are to be on the lookout for. And here's the question. Bring this back into your personal life. How are you... There's a scheme at work in your life. How are you trying to be seduced by this system? How is this system trying to seduce you individually? It doesn't do this the same way in each and every person's life, but it does it. And every single one of us, it attempts to squeeze us into the mold through seduction. Through seduction. Another way to say this is Babylon is coming at you with its bling, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to throw something either on, on, on your insides or in front of your eyes. There's something's coming at you that on the surface seems like riches, treasure, good, pleasure. But under the surface, it's in rebellion to God and it's like a moral cancer. And we are to resist it to the core. How is this coming at you? How is it coming at you? Is it even possible? Listen to this verse of Scripture. You are not above this temptation to love the world. Listen to this passage. I want to read 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 20 and I'll read three verses. Listen to this reality that's described here. For if after they have escaped... The defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them, what the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its vomit. Do you know that that can happen? That has been happening perpetually since the beginning and the foundation of God's church. That there are some in the midst of the church that are not actually apart from the church, and one of the ways that that's going to come out is this allurement, this seduction of the world, and that dog is going to return back to his own vomit. That can happen to you. You are to be leaned in, fighting against that, not lean back, falling asleep, although that can never happen to me. You are to be resisting the sin of worldliness, fighting against it, by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. This is not a hypothetical warning. You can be seduced. You can't be seduced. This is not hypothetical. I want to remind you about a story in Scripture. This is a terrifying story. Okay, There's a guy named Demas in the New Testament. I'm going to tell you a few things that we know about him. And this is the warning for us. We are not to feel like this can never happen to me. Because... Man, I'm involved with the things of God. Look at my life in and out. I'm, I'm on the mission of Christ. My life is immersed in the things of Christ. Not, not even close to, to what this man's was. This man named Demas was a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. He accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. Now I want you to think about that. Okay, This man is a pioneer missionary. He is an evangelist. He is side by side with the Apostle to the Gentiles. A man that is carving books of Scripture. Probably right beside him. Okay? 
The man is preaching the gospel and he is seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrate pagan people groups. He's seeing churches of Jesus spring up in lands where false gods are worshipped. He sees it with his own eyes over and over and over again. He is a pioneer missionary, a laborer, a fellow worker in the gospel. And I want to tell you, the last thing we know about this man's life is sad, sad, sad. It's a wake-up call to every one of us who sit in the church today. Who sit in the church today. The, the book of first, uh, 2 Timothy, chronologically, this is the last thing that Paul wrote. He wrote it as an old man. He's about to be martyred. He's, he's, he's already being poured out as a drink offering. So chronologically... It's at the very end of, of New Testament history. And here's the last description that we know about this man named Demas. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That man that we just talked about that was involved with pioneer missions. Pioneer missions. Not planting a church in Jackson. Okay? Planting a church in an unreached people group where there is no church. Seeing a worshiping body of Jesus spring up out of nothing. He saw it over and over and over again. And what happened to him? He deserted. That's an apostate. He turned his back on Christ. He walked away from the faith. And that text tells us why. Why in the world would you ever do that? And it says because he was in love with this present world. And so I want you to feel the weight of that warning. If you just in your mind very quickly fast forward 20, 30 years down into the future of your life. Where will you stand? Do you even feel the appropriate warning of God? Keep me from loving this world. Don't let me walk down that path of demons, that seductive path. I want you to see what that text says. It says that he was seduced by that bling of Babylon that we talked about. That something had landed in this man's soul to where he thought that this present world was more valuable, more enjoyable, more pleasurable than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He turned his back on the unsearchable riches and he went after this present world. Do you feel the weight of that warning? Like a dog returning to vomit. He was not saved and lost it. He went out from us because he was not of us. He proved himself to be a false convert. Jesus told us to expect this in the church. He told us that there is a gospel response. Somebody responds favorably to the gospel... And then a certain amount of time passes and it actually becomes evident that they are a false convert because of their relationship with the world. Listen to this verse. Mark chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. And others, other seed are sown among thorns. Seed sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word but the cares of the world, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches 
and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This can happen. We are to expect it to happen. We are to fight and resist worldliness in all of its forms. And I just want you to think about that. We know from Jesus, some will respond and some time's going to pass and it's going to show that they're still in love with this world. They never broke away from it. They try to have God in the world and they're false converts. Now try to put yourself in Demas' shoes and you tell, I'll give you two options. How did that happen? Option A, you see the gospel penetrating Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi and you see them turn from idols and, and, and worship the true and the living God on Monday. And you wake up on Tuesday and you say, you know what? Who cares about that? Who cares about that? I think I'd rather go have a house and a nice family. Who cares about these things of Christ? And that's option A. That happened instantaneously in a moment. That he fell in love with this world. Or option B. There are things that began to creep into his life. Inappropriate affections that were competing on the inside for his loyalty and his allegiance to God. And you know what he did? Ignored them. He didn't fight against them. He didn't make war against these, these idols in his life. And it was a slow, progressive fade towards eventually turning his back on the things of God. Option A or option B? I'm going with B all day long. This is how it happens. A little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more. More in love with the world. More in love with the world. And that will take you to, to deserting the Lord Jesus, to renouncing the faith. Do you feel that warning? Do you feel that? That makes me want to fight against it. The slightest conviction of these inappropriate affections that I'm to make war in the power of the Holy Spirit against these sins of worldliness. John, then in this passage, he gives us Several motivations and reasons. So he commands us not to love the world. And then he gives us a string of reasons why we are to not love the world. And we're going to walk through these motivations and these reasons this morning. And the first one is this. This is the first thing we come to in our passage. He tells us to not love the world. That wicked evil system. Because that wicked evil system stands in opposition to the Father. Everything that the Father stands for. That system is against it. And you see this in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there, there's the consequence. If we ignore the command, there's the consequence that he immediately hits us with. That you have two different things. You have one little phrase. You have two different sides to it. Love the world, if that's true, then it automatically makes the back half of that sentence true. If you love the world, then you do not have the love of the Father. You do not possess it. These are mutually exclusive. You can have either one you want, but you cannot have both. That's the point here. They're in opposition to one another. You can't be wet and dry at the same time. You can't be hot and cold at the same time. And you cannot love the world and possess the love of the Father at the same time. They are in opposition. They are mutually exclusive. They are mutually exclusive. Allegiance to one 
is automatic declaration of war towards the other. If you love the Father, it is an automatic declaration of war of everything that stands against the Father. Everything that stands against Him. I want to put this verse before you. Try to wake us up to the sinfulness of worldliness. And one of the ways the Bible talks about this sin in opposition to the Father is it's like committing spiritual adultery against the Father. I want you to see this in James chapter 4 verse 4. I want you to see it in your own Bible because this is a shocker. You adulterous people. What a way to start a conversation, right? You adulterous people. You adulterous people. What in the world are they doing to merit this conversation starting like that? Adulterous people. And then listen. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? See what we just talked about there? Allegiance to one, automatic war towards the other. Enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can have either one you desire, but you cannot have both. That's the point that he's making here. But he calls it adultery. He calls friendship with the world adultery. A people who would go after friendship and allegiance and love to the world is an adulterous people. Raise your hand real fast if you're married in the room this morning. Alright? Now, put this scenario in your mind. Try to, try to visualize this. That you and your spouse whom you love, whom you praise God for, Y'all go to sleep tonight and about midnight you notice that your spouse gets out of bed. And you catch your spouse walking out the front door. They walk across the street of your neighborhood into the front door of your neighbor's house and climb in the bed with your neighbor. What kind of affections are you feeling? Does that make you angry? Is that something that you would hate even to imagine? That you would hate to imagine that? Does that sound like something that would cause you pain? This is exactly how God feels when we run after the things of this world. It is spiritual adultery. It is spiritual adultery when we go after the things that stand in opposition to God. You know what? We don't talk about our sin like that. And I include myself in that. I I want to be more biblical in the way that I talk about my sin. You know what we talk about? Brother, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I got, you know, I can't get A, B, C, D, E off my mind. I feel like money or my job or my family or my kids is is too is playing too big of a role in my life. But you know something I've never heard as a Christian. And I'm not saying it never happens, but I am saying that it's rare. Nobody has ever come to me and said, "Brother, I am cheating on God. I am sleeping with false gods." There are other things in my life and and, and I'm committing adultery against my God. Do you think we would hate sin if we thought about it more like that? Do you think that we would come against it with more, uh, more boldness, more zeal to kill it in our life if we saw it 
as climbing in the bed with false gods, turning our back on the Father whom we love. Spiritual adultery. That's what's at stake here. This is a serious thing. To even dabble with it is to cheat on God. To cheat on God. That ought to wake us up to the seriousness of this sin of worldliness. So now I want to spend some time exposing its strategies. And the reason why is clear. Number one, the text does it. The text tells us how this system works, of how it's going to come at us. And number two, if that point just landed on you, and if you love God, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you love the Father, then you want to know everything you can about how to not commit adultery against your God. Tell me everything I can know, Lord. I don't want to turn my back against you. I want to learn how to fight. I want to learn how to fight sin in my life. So we want to expose these strategies. And he does that in verse 16. He tells us that this world has a strategy to stir up our sinful affections. To stir up our sinful affections. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but it's from the world. So there's the strategy. It's coming at you. And it's going to try to seduce you in these specific ways. It's going to try to stir up sin in your life. That wicked system. And the first thing I want to do is I want you to notice in verse 16. I want you to notice how inward the strategy is. We're talking about desires and pride. Okay? And the reason I point that out is almost every time you hear about this sin talked about, it's almost always in, in the external. It's almost always defined up, up with actions that we do or don't do. And this verse defines worldliness and, and affections that we have and don't have. Worldliness is something on the inside. Okay? You say, what do you mean? Maybe you've heard this. A lot of the times the conversation gets hijacked about what kind of foods you can't eat, what kind of drink you can't drink, what kind of music you cannot listen to, what kind of clothes you can't wear, what kind of movies you can go to, what kind of movies you can't, what kind of people you can hang out with, and what kind of people you can And that's what it means to be worldly. You see how external that is. Actions that you do or you don't do. And I want you to notice how internal this strategy is. Affections that you feel or don't feel. Now I'm not saying that the external has no bearing in worldliness. It does. But I am telling you that God is telling us that the battle rages on the inside. On the inside. That outside can look as clean as a whistle. And that does not make someone uh, not worldly. They can be the most worldly person you know if they're godless. If they're godless. What makes you worldly or not is the affections on the inside. That's what we see in this verse. This is why the commandment is. Do not love the world. Puts it on the inside. So if you're leaned in. And you want to fight against this sin. You're going to have to learn how to fight on that level. Not just hand reaches out and you slap it. Slapping hand. That's external. You're going to have to learn how to go to war. On your wants. Your desires. Your pride. Things on the inside. 
If you're going to fight this monster, you've got to learn how to fight it there. And we want to expose his strategies, satanic strategies. Here's what I mean. It's going to take more, okay, than you walking out of here today and punching those six presets on your radio to Christian radio. One, two, three, four, five, six. Boom, boom, boom. And if there's not six Christian radio stations, you just plug the same station on all six. It's going to take more than that. Okay? It's going to take more than internet filters. It's going to take more than a to-do list of what you do and don't do. You have got to go to war in the level of affections. It's not that that doesn't have any place. It's just not the main place that we fight. We fight for the affections. So just remember this. The opposite of worldliness is not morality. That's not the opposite. There are people, I have people in my family who are some of the most moral people on planet earth, but they are given completely over to worldliness. They have no thoughts of God. No thoughts of God. So the opposite of worldliness is godliness. It's being entrenched, insaturated. Everything I do is for God. It's the complete opposite of that system. Everything the system does is there is no God. Rebellion against God. But godliness is God saturated. God soaked in all things. And that's where we have to learn how to fight. That our affections, every one of them would terminate on our great God. On our great God. So if we're going to fight these godless desires that creep up within us, that the system is going to try to stir up in you, you need your mind renewed to its strategy of how it's going to come at you. Listen to Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So when you hear about this sin, the first thing you need to do is you need to know something. Your mind needs to be transformed. It's not always extremely practical. You need to know something before you put these practical steps in place. And you need to know how this system is coming at you. And it's coming at you in three ways. There is a threefold strategy that it is unleashing relentlessly in your life, even today. Even today. The, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Another way to say that, it wants to manipulate what you want. It wants to manipulate what you see. It wants to manipulate the things that you have. It's coming at you. Okay? It wants to stir up sin in your life. And here's its strategy. It's preying off of human depravity. The world system does not make you sinful. You took care of that on your own. It didn't make you sinful. Okay? We are sinful in Adam. We are sinful from birth. But what the system does is it preys off of human depravity. It comes and it manipulates our weaknesses. Okay? It's coming at us in these three ways. Let's spend some time on the first one. The desires of the flesh. Of the flesh. You are being assaulted by a system that seeks to manipulate your bodily appetites. Your bodily appetites. You live in God's creation. God made you a certain way. And it is perfectly natural and normal and good for human beings, God's image bearers, to desire food and drink and sex and shelter and beauty. Normal desires. God made us like that. 
God put those desires in us. But those desires can be hijacked by sin and they become worldly and evil and wicked when we pursue the fulfillment of those natural desires apart from God. And that's what the system is always going to do. Live your life in this world without any reference to the Creator. In Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's what you need to be on the lookout for. Not somebody handing you a piece of paper and saying, Hey, Kurt, do you believe there's a God? And Kurt says, No. That's not what you need to be on the lookout for. You need to be on the lookout for these thoughts that slide across your mind of there is no God. He says in his heart, there is no God. That What would it look like for you to live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week like there is no God? That you fulfill all these desires that God has given you with little thought to your Creator. We are supposed to be doing the most mundane things in the universe. Like eating and drinking. 1 Corinthians 10 31. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Everything you do, every single day, is to be an act of worship and service and praise to your God. But the system is going to present itself to you in such a way to fulfill these desires with no thoughts of God. No thoughts of His glory. No thoughts of pursuing these desires while being governed by his law. That is the godless system that you live in. Every single one of us. You need to know that your sinful heart and mind. Constantly is tempted. To take the neutral things of God's creation. Money. Family. Good things. And turn them into ultimate things. You are constantly going to be tempted to worship and serve the creature. The created things. Rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. What would that look like in your life? To love your family more than you love Christ. To love your job more than you love Christ. To love the work of Christ more than you love Christ. This can be anything. Absolutely anything. In all of God's creation. Can become an idol. If you want it more than you want God. If you desire it more than you desire God. And that's going to be the constant temptation to us in this godless society. As you look out at everywhere else besides the true church of Jesus, every one of those good, natural things that we just mentioned, they're, they're being pursued 150 miles per hour without any thought of God. All their thoughts are, there is no God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you live in that world. You wake up and eat and sleep and breathe in a world that is godless. In a world that is godless. Anything that you want more than you want God is an idol. And I'll just take it a step further. Anything that you want without wanting God is an idol. You say, what's the difference? Okay? If you have any desires in your life that you cannot connect back to God, whether in thanksgiving, in worship, in glory, in praising His name, it's an idol. It's a godless life. That's what we're going to war for. Okay? Not all that external stuff. We are declaring war that we refuse to live like this system lives. We live a God-soaked, God-entrenched existence. Puritans used to call it a God-besotted life. Every single corner of their life is filled up with God. With God. Start to finish. Listen to Psalm 
73, verse 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Really? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Is that really true? Really true? That there's not anything that he desired besides God? I don't think so. I think you can desire food, the good things of God, the work and the glory and praise of God. But what he's saying there is he doesn't desire anything that doesn't ultimately terminate at the end of the line as a desire for God himself. Desire the created things that he has made and behind it all is a desire for the creator to worship him, to enjoy him, to praise him. That's what it means to be godly, God-centered, God-soaked. And we are at war in this world to live that kind of life. To pursue all these wants and all these desires with reference to the Creator in all things. So it's coming at you. You wake up in this world every single day. Second strategy. We read this verse before we do. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. How serious are you supposed to take these desires? It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Those desires that we just talked about, godless desires are waging war on your insides. And they mean to do you in. They mean to do you in. Second strategy of the world is the desires of the eyes. And here's the warning to you. That you live, you are being assaulted by a system that wants to show you something. It wants to put something before you at all times. It wants access to your heart and your mind through the things that it shows you through your eyes. You live in this world. And it's going to show you constant pictures of forbidden things, just flat out sinful things. Or natural, normal, neutral things presented to you in a forbidden way. It wants to get to you through what you're seeing. Through what you're seeing. Listen to what Jesus said about the eyes. Jesus said in Luke 11 verse 34. He says... Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. So it's the window to the soul, right? That system wants to manipulate us by showing us some things. And sin is stirred up so often by the things that we see. Surely you know what this is like. Jesus, that's, that's why He compared Looking with lust on a woman with the sin of adultery. Because that sin came through the eyes. Something was seen and then it was coveted and then it was acted upon. It comes through the things that you see. So remember, that system is satanic, demonic, nothing good about it. But it's going to present itself to you deceitfully. It's going to lie to you about things. It's going to make sinful, forbidden things seem pleasurable, fun, enjoyable, valuable. But it's a lie. It wants access into your life through what it's showing you. And I want to remind you that Satan, he uses this system with absolute mastery. Absolute mastery. Thousands of years of experience. He knows what he's doing. 
of showing you exactly what you don't need to see. Mastery. I'm going to give you some examples of this. In, in the book of Joshua, there was a man named Achan. Okay? This man, he wasn't part of the rebellious generation that rebelled against God. He was part of the generation that went into the promised land to begin to dispossess the enemies of God from the land of Israel, the land that God gave His people. That journey of kicking the enemies of God out of the promised land, it started with the, with the, with the Jordan River and the priests stepping it with, with the ark of God in their hand. And the Word of God says that that river parts from way up north in Israel to way down south and that the people of God walk through a river parted. It's like a repeat of what happened at the Red Sea. And that man they make and did that. He saw the living God act in power and, 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 and do a power move on His creation and drive back a mighty river and made it dry land. He saw that. And then they go into battle to Jericho. And God gives a commandment. And He says, everything is about to be given over into your hand. But you're to, you're to devote all the spoil as an offering to the Lord. That man, after he had seen the things that he had seen, look what he does. Joshua chapter 7, verse 20 and 21. And Achan answered Joshua, said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar. When I saw a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted. Then I took them. You know what that sin cost that man? He was stoned to death with his entire family because he saw something. And he coveted it. And he took it. See how that works? I'll give you another example. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. Just a normal day, right? And it happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and that woman was very beautiful. Anybody who knows Scripture knows what happens next, right? He doesn't run inside and begin to do war against this wicked desire. What does he do? He goes and takes that woman's wife and he sleeps with her. And in an adulterous union, God judges the child of that adulterous marriage. And, and, and a little kid dies because of that sin. And a husband is murdered because of that sin. All because he saw something and he wanted it. This is the system. It's going to show you things all the time. And we need to go to war to the things that we are seeing in. The things that we are being shown in this world. Last strategy is the pride of life. You're being assaulted by a system that seeks to manipulate the things that you have. The things that you have. The word life in the Greek here is the word bios. Bios, and that word can either mean the state of being alive or just your livelihood. And I take the pride to be in regards to both. And we'll explain that. What would pride look about like in regards to just being alive? It would look like fallen humanity. 
that struts through this world. God says they're a mist, they're a shadow, they're a vapor, they're a passing shadow in this world. And they walk through God's creation boasting and strutting that they are untouchable, that they need no help, that they need no God. That would be the pride of life. That would be the expression of the pride of life. That's godless society. Do anything. I'm untouchable. I don't need God. And then what would pride look like in regards to your livelihood? The same Greek word that's used to describe that widow's might that she drops into the box in, in Mark chapter 12. And in just the next chapter of 1 John, 1 John 3, 17, this word is used to describe the world's good. It means money, livelihood. What would that look like in your life? Maybe even some of your translations translate it that way, that the pride in possessions, the pride that comes from the things that you have or the things that you attain. Okay? You need things in this world to live in this world. You need food or you need money to buy food. But that, the world system attacks these natural needs and it makes them ultimate things. And it doesn't take any skill at all to describe this is exactly what the godless society lives and breeds for. More, best, better, attain, acquire, and their entire life can be summed up in materialism and ego and self-glory and vanity. And that's the pride of life. And you live in that system. You live in that system. This is, the th this is that threefold strategy. And it's coming at every one of us. And it never changes. God is exposing what the strategy has been from the very beginning. These are the same three things that Satan tempted Eve with and Jesus. I want to show you that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to this verse. So, listen for the three. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Satan presented her something that had an appeal to her body, food. Satan presented her something that had an appeal to her sense of vision. It was pleasing to the eye. And then Satan presented a temptation to her pride. This will make you wise. God is holding out on you. There is something to be had in rebellion against God. Do you see that? That strategy is still the same. It doesn't change. This is the same thing he does to Jesus in Luke chapter 4. I'll read these to you. You try to link these up with, with those three phrases in 1 John 2.16. Luke chapter 4 verse 3. The devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. What is that? An appeal to the desires of the flesh. To be fulfilled apart from God's will, apart from God's law. And Jesus refuses. Next temptation. That one didn't work. Luke chapter 4 verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I want you to imagine that temptation. He was shown a satanic vision. In a moment of time, Satan flashed before his eyes all the kingdoms of humanity in all their riches, in all their glory, in all their pleasures. And he said, Jesus, you can have it all. He showed him something. 
He wanted access into the Savior's heart and the Savior's mind through His eyes. He wanted to show Him something. Jesus refuses. He says, You shall, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Temptation comes again. Luke chapter 4, verse 9. And He took Him to Jerusalem and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. This is a temptation for Jesus to strut around in God's world untouchable without any reference to God's law, God's word, God's commandments. And the temptation is basically this. Nothing could ever happen to you, Jesus. Jump off that pinnacle. Those angels will catch you before your feet hit the ground. And Jesus knew that it would have been sin. And Satan wanted to see his human body splatter on the pavement. But he resisted this temptation to pride, to this arrogance that struts through life as untouchable. This is the same way that this system is coming at you. How is it coming at you? How is it coming at you? It will constantly try to entice you in these three ways. Through the things that you want, through the things that you see, through the things that you have. Last thing I want us to touch. John gives us a final reason that we are not to love the world. And the final reason is that it is passing away. That wicked, evil, satanic, rebellious system that we hate is on its way out. It is passing away. You see this in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Along with its desires. So this, this system, it, it deceptively appears to be permanent, but it's not. It's transient. It's temporary. It's like a shadow. It's like a mist. And anyone who partakes in the sin of worldliness... You are building your entire life on something that will not last. It's like building a house on quicksand. It might be what you call fun for a millisecond and then it's going up like ashes forever and ever and ever and ever. It has no eternal value. None. It is eternally worthless. The fastest way to waste your entire life is to be given over to worldliness, to a godless life. It is passing away. Passing away. And more than, more than being worthless and passing away, it is doomed. It is on a death spiral. That word passing away, it's actually a passive tense, which means somebody is pushing that system out. It's not going willingly. Somebody's pushing it out of here. And that's God. Even in the present, God is pushing this wicked system out of His creation. And there's coming a final day where the hammer is going to drop and this system is going to cease to exist. It's going to be burned to the ground. It's going to be burned to the ground. I want to read this passage in Revelation 18. The bookends of Scripture deal with a kingdom called Babylon. Genesis 11 is the origin of this kingdom, gathers together to rebel against God. Well, in the last days when God judges the rebellious kingdom of the world, and He begins to pour out eternal wrath, the name of that kingdom is Babylon. It's that same kingdom that's been in existence 
since they tried to build the tower and, and forcefully advance into God's presence. I want to read Revelation 18. We'll start in verse 2. This is the end of this system. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she has paid herself back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. She has glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a measure of torment and mourning. Since her heart, in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. And death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. That's the doom system. God is already pushing it out and He is going to burn it to the ground. There is no future and you live in a worldly life. It lasts a millisecond in light of eternity. A millisecond in light of eternity. The final thing that John leaves us with is that's not us. That is not us. A Christian is not one who loves the world. A Christian is not one who lives for things that are passing away. A Christian is not one who's going to be doomed with this wicked system. According to verse 17, a Christian is one who does the will of God and lives forever. And lives forever. So I want to tell you about what God did for us in regards to this wicked system. There was an enemy against us that we had no chance of defeating. It was too strong for us. This wicked system, we had no chance. We were even part of it. So what did God do? God sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy, Holy, Holy One to live in this creation, subjecting Himself to all the hostilities of this wicked system. And what did Jesus do? He conquered it. He conquered it. That wicked system threw everything that it had at Christ. Every single thing. And Christ bore it. He conquered it. He over. Came it. He refused to participate in the wickedness, in the hostility, in the rebellion against God. And then what did He do? He delivered the death blow to the king of this wicked kingdom on His cross. Through death, He defeated the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus has overcome this system and He shares this victory with us, the people of God. We, this system... This system of rebellion and hostility, it has no claim on us. No claim on us. We are not a part of this world. We live in God's creation, but we have no part, no claim in this hostile, evil organization. Listen to Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. How thankful are you for that this morning? That because of what Jesus has done, your strong enemy is counted as dead to you. Dead to you. No claim on you. You are dead to this wicked system. Dead to it. Praise to Christ. He shares His victory with the system, with Christians, with all who trust Him. And so what's the commandment today if you're not a Christian? Do the will of God and live forever. Do the will of God and live forever. Don't love the world. Don't build your life on the things that pass away. And what is the will of God? What is the will of God? John chapter 6, verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You can love the world, or you can believe the gospel and live forever. And God offers this victory, this deliverance from this satanic kingdom to any and all who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, the strong one, the Savior. This is the only chance that you have from being loosened from the grip of this system. 1 John chapter 5 Verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Not a single Christian if that's not true for. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Spiritual push-ups. Spiritual disciplines. That's not what it says. Our faith. We believe and we conquer. We receive that victory that Jesus has achieved because we believe the gospel and He shares the riches with us. He shares His riches with us. We overcome. We have the victory through faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? The only person that has victory over this wicked system is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So these are the two paths. And God has plucked us from the fire. We don't love the world. We love the Father. But these are the two paths that God puts in front of us. Your two options. You are a created being to love and you will love. Your two options are this. Okay, You can love the world and be doomed forever and ever and ever. And your entire life can go up in ashes. Or you can do the will of God and you can live for hundreds of millions of ages and worship the Lord Jesus Christ who's died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today that you would go away from this place and that we would be resolved. I want to live for the things that last forever. Not the things that pass away. Not the little trinkets of this world. I want to live for Christ and the things of eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we ask you to visit us, Lord, today. God, use your word in our life. God, visit us today with resurrection power, Lord. Break the allurement of the things of the world in our hearts, Lord. God, come with fresh, fresh conviction 
of the sinfulness of our sins. And we pray, Lord Jesus, be king over us. Have it all, Lord. You are worthy of all affection, all our desires, all of our allegiances, Lord. And we just say, reign over us, Christ. Reign over us, Lord. Come break the power of our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.